Welcome to the Observatory. I'm Jessica Hilton. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from the Sign Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds in the air. This episode is sponsored by Yale University Press, publisher of serious works that contribute to a global understanding of human affairs. To learn more, visit YaleBooks.com. One of our loyal listeners, Carl W. Smith, sent us a note on our Facebook page recently asking us to talk about the new Instagram logo. Now, to our listeners, if you haven't seen it yet, Instagram has replaced its vintage Polaroid icon with an abstracted white camera on a rainbow gradient. There were many people who hated it, as people love to hate things online, and particularly logos. One of my favorite angry comments, or or perhaps um, just critical comments, was by uh, Hannah Jane Parkinson in The Guardian, who described it as, quote, as if the camera were murdered and chalk was drawn around its body. Michael, we've been down this road before, haven't we? You know that I find this exasperating. I mean, so if you're a designer and you're sort of your whole reason for being is either inventing new things or changing old things, it sort of means you're fighting an uphill battle against uh, the natural conservatism of the human race. I think this has been exacerbated by a couple of things. Um, One is obviously, you know, social media and the ability for instant feedback. And also, I think there's something about living in the digital realm that makes things like this Instagram icon, there's so much a part of people's lives. If you're an enthusiastic user of Instagram, you sort of encounter that and work with and click on and see and think about that symbol over and over again during the course of a day. Much more than you'd see a, a logo for a, a typical corporation. So when it changes, it really feels like someone just, you know, gave you a nose job, you know, while you were sleeping and you wake up and you look in the mirror and you think, oh my God, that's not my face. You know, I think, I, I really think people think it's, take it that personally. I think if you look back to your own career, Michael, when you chose to be a graphic designer or if, as Paul Rand said, graphic design chose you, You'd never thought about the fact that your profession was going to be so public as to be the fodder for criticism by the entire universe. In other words, if you're a gastroenterologist, you know, is somebody on there just, you know, demeaning your diagnosis of someone's colonoscopy? I mean, seriously, there are so (laughs) many professions in which somebody can actually do their work, do it well, be professional, and move on to the next thing and derive great satisfaction, not from this constant discussion. And so these things, I think, that want to be at once universal and unique, which one could say is the goal of many successful designers, is suddenly the the fodder for criticism by the entire world. I actually think that if graphic designers or anyone purporting to do public work that's meant to function at the level of mass communication, if they can't handle a public response, regardless of how negative it is or how positive it is or how hasty it is or how ill-informed it is or any of that stuff, they shouldn't do it. You've um, told me this often because you're much better at this than I am. I, I think the worst thing that would happen for a, for a company today is if you put out a new logo and no one comments at all. I think that people sort of now are sort of hungry for the outrage. It's just no, there's no such thing as bad publicity. And, and, and you know, and, and they did, by the way, a what I thought was a, a lovely little video that sort of showed the, the process. Video the, I, I the video is fantastic. The video makes you love it. I thought it was very Really sweet. beautiful. Yeah. But let me just say, well, first of all, in, in response to what you just said, Michael, that that's like, you know, if a logo gets changed in the forest and nobody's there to see it, was it still a logo that got changed, right? Yeah, that's yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that, you know, bearing witness Why is everybody's responsibility exactly. and opportunity. 
and and I'd say, and I'd say the the commissioning uh, clients secretly yearn for it. I mean, there's this sort of I think there's this almost quasi masochistic, you know. I just can't wait for people to freak out over our new logo sort of thing. And I think with apps particularly, it's you can sort of see they go in with their loins so girded. You know, look at all the stuff that preceded the relaunch of the Uber logo. They were well prepared for that. So I think they're kind of like really waiting for that response and planning on riding it out, which they probably should. My criticism about this logo, if I have one, has to do with the use of color and in particular the adoption of a rainbow, which can mean everything from gay rights to non-committal. I didn't know which color to pick, so I chose every color. And we could talk about the spectrum and how you love it and how I hate it, which I think we're going to get to in a minute. But I just want to say first <laughs> that the thing that it reminded me of in that video in particular was this a great Christoph Neiman illustration of how illustrators and editors work with metaphors. And you may remember this, Michael, yeah, do, because do, yeah. we gave a talk last year together, we used this. It's a picture of a hand holding a magnifying glass. And then it's a picture of a birdcage that has the grid of wire that is the birdcage. And then the whole thing gets shaken up and it becomes a tennis racket, right? So the shape of the magnifying glass and the infrastructure of the birdcage, which is exactly what this is. It, they show you this thing, we shook up all the colors and guess what, we got a rainbow. You know, this may be a matter of taste, but I have this kind of fetish about rainbow gradations that I that I keep remarkably um, subdued and it very seldom bursts out into um, my work even thinking about it makes me so happy and relaxed now and you're somebody who who has said so often publicly that you you cleave only onto black and white so maybe that's sort of daring is. admission from you maybe for me it just represents such a danger area because when you said that whole thing like we can't we can't decide on a color so we'll have all the colors that just sounds like yeah let's have all the colors it just sounds really exciting to me so instead then i think ooh, maybe i shouldn't indulge that side of myself because there lies madness and who knows what might happen after that and so you and go so back I'm to just, black and white yeah i'm just going to stick to black and white because at least you know you know where you stand with black and white for god's sakes What's so weird is that the, the new thing is introduced. Everyone freaks out because it's unfamiliar on minute one, hour one, day one, week one. And then particularly if you're habituated to seeing the Instagram logo, I swear to God, you look at it as many times a day as you look at it. And by the end of the week, the end of the second week, you might encounter in some instance like the old Instagram logo a month later, and it'll look literally like it's a thousand years old. Oh, that thing. I remember that thing. When, when was that thing anyway? That was the old Instagram logo. You know, you know one thing that did interest me that, that I thought was an original point of view that I hadn't thought of, which is that Instagram is one of the top apps for teenagers, I think surpassed only by Snapchat. And the concept of its its app logo being anything that references nostalgia. What is nostalgia to a teenager? I mean, they haven't been on the planet long enough to be nostalgic about anything. So, oh, you know, teenagers are that... very nostalgic. I remember years ago, like driving around, uh, taking my kids to like the, the soccer game or to the mall or something, and hearing them reminisce about like early episodes. You know, the early formative canonical episodes of of Doug or SpongeBob SquarePants or something. And they really like we're talking about it as if, yeah, you know, oh yeah, I remember that. You know, it's like Casablanca or, you know, right, exactly. Right. Cartoon um, historians, yeah. we call them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, another thing is that it gets at is this idea that you make something, I mean, I don't think Instagram did this, but the idea of making something intentionally ugly or unattractive so that it's more memorable. There's a conversation that's been brewing recently online 
about this idea of what some are calling the new brutalism, which is a sort of response against the streamlined visual nature of cleaned up interfaces as we've experienced them in recent years to something that was uh, much more organic and original and, and, and sloppier. I'm not sure that that brutalism in architecture was based on the same thing. I think it had many other social uh, and cultural reasons for being. But the idea that we would start to think about logos in terms of brutalism is a pretty interesting fit. Yeah, and uh, you know, and and it's funny because there is this way of using gradations, which is I, I think that Instagram was trying to do a pretty gradation, and you know the degree to which I think they succeeded so marvelously, but I think that that's what they were trying to be pretty. I think there's a way that designers can use gradations as a real throwback to the early days of the internet, where it's very harsh, very nasty. Like, oh look, there's a gradation tool in this uh, you know, Mac Paint program that I can use. And I'm sure that a lot of our listeners have either noticed this or subconsciously noticed it. There's some, there, there just is some websites that kind of go back to that you know, undesigned you know, Craigslist sort of aesthetic where in the face of the sameness of so many websites, that suddenly just sort of seeing some completely undigested, unfiltered HTML-looking stuff in cyan and just with a couple of almost harsh-looking accents, you know, all of a sudden looks fresh and bracing. In a way, I suppose, that um, architectural brutalism looked in the face of a lot of pretty revivalist buildings. Right, 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 pared down and and overly made palatable. So I want to take a step back about this this question of brutalism versus polished uh, anything, really. Uh, because it gets at this idea that, that there's some kind of playbook. And I'm always, I think, if you take the point of view that designers like change, they like inventing new ways of doing things. The classic designer, uh, how many designers does it take to screw in a light bulb? Answer is, does it have to be a light bulb, right? So take <laughs> that as your premise. And how do we, how do designers get at this idea of best practices? Best to whom? And this is, the, this is the argument among UI and UX people, that people are going to click right, they're going to swipe left, they're going to do certain, you know, engage in certain behaviors, understanding that the hamburger means there's a drop-down menu, all sorts of things like that. It, are there limits to that? Are there limits to what people in digital spaces expect to happen uh, to, to the degree that designers, while they willingly should responsibly, I suppose, participate in understanding that as public, also know where they can jump off and, and be ambivalent about something or change something or shift into high gear an element of the navigation of a digital space in a way that makes it special or unique or particular to a, 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 you know, a subject. And I think that's where the idea that everybody likes rainbows or hates rainbows or blue is everyone's favorite color or it isn't you know, gets at this sort of crucial human prerogative, which is that we cannot all possibly agree, ever. If you're an architect, the idea that buildings have doors isn't just a convention. It actually is a requirement to enter the building. There has to be some right. things some right. opening, right? Um, right? But I think, you know, the idea you click, you know, cl- click one way or swipe another way or that, you know, these horizontal lines will all agree somehow represent a thing that upon which if you upon which you click will reveal a menu that's i mean who 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 legislated that right but that? if you're, if you're designing like, if you're designing a book you know that book has to have a binding and the pages have to turn and typically the numbers are in sequence so that people can find things that's your metaphor of the door and the architect 
But I mean, there's no there's no end to designers experimenting with column widths and typefaces and all sorts of other things. I think that the the permutations and the options in digital spaces, particularly given the rise of mobile, make that harder. And it, particularly given the rise of mobile, as you rightly pointed out earlier, Michael, you're staring at your iPhone or uh, or your iPad oh, nine times and a day again, over and over again, and so if, so if suddenly your your email icon is purple and not blue, you feel a little destabilized. Yeah, there's something about natural selection happening here, right? You know, so I don't think the. Uh, International Board of Internet Standards sent down some sort of uh, edict that henceforth this thing we now call a hamburger icon. Jerry Seinfeld used to call it the Department of They. You know, when they say, like, they say it's going to rain. (laughs) Who are they? You know, it's just we all kind of like um, the hive mind just sort of nudges us all in that direction. And suddenly we build a a little, you know, thing that turns into a city on that corner. Um, I do think, though, that when natural selection kind of prevails, eventually, you know, there's a mutation that comes out and many of them are those are experiments that we'll do we'll try something new people get frustrated with the sameness of the convention a lot of the things that are tried don't catch on but one of those things might acquire some um, critical mass and some momentum and suddenly then things start to look more like that i mean i think gravity design is really unique in that regard maybe it's like fashion design where there just simply are these things that people will do for a while then get tired of them then start doing the opposite right. thing and this whole thing about you know flat design versus, versus not flat design but know, again it comes it comes back to this idea of what the rules are and, and and the idea of a playbook and this makes me think that you know public radio here in the United States has this wonderful program called on the media so they've been publishing for a while mm, now these consumers handbooks they've got an election edition a terrorism edition one might make the case that it's time for a breaking news consumers handbook for understanding the logo and its power over all of us because it's just it's just endless <laughs> it's endless and i think maybe 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 we have the uh, expertise we you and i on behalf of our community here to do a major shout out for the fact that that needs to happen I think we should do that. We can ask our listeners to contribute, but I mean, it sort of is something that has the title. So they changed your favorite right. logo, you know, you know, and like, I would say like first remain calm. Right. Yeah. Do not go to the grocery store and stock up on, <laughs> you know, on staples and dry goods and bottled water. Everything's going to be right. okay. You know, just breathe deeply, you know, look at this new logo, you know, try to figure out why you hate it so much. There's definitely a playbook for how to do it, but it's also it's just as kind of entertaining to watch what what at this point is the predictability of the response. You know, my five-year-old, et cetera, could have designed that and things like that. And then and then part of what's kind of frustrating about it too is that it all is um, you know it's it's also evanescent that three weeks later it's on to the next thing, right? So maybe just people need these things to get excited about just to distract them from you know, horrible... The election. The election from really horrible things that are happening (laughs) as opposed to logos. And now a word from our sponsor. Yale University Press publishes serious works that contribute to a global understanding of human affairs. In its commitment to increasing the range and vigor of intellectual pursuits... Yale University Press continually extends its horizons to embody university publishing at its best. To learn more, visit YaleBooks.com. Speaking of books, I would like to talk about my favorite thing this week. It's a book that I have not yet read, but I have acquired and intend to um, by a 
friend of Design Observer, the wonderful writer Tom Vanderbilt. He's done this book called um, You May Also Like. I think it's ostensibly about the kind of mechanisms that different entities today use to determine what you're likely to buy if you bought something else and the, the kind of prompts you get from everything from Amazon to online music streaming services where they're really trying and sometimes trying with frightening accuracy to guess if you bought these things, you're going to also want to buy this thing. Um, but he also gets into this interesting stuff about taste, you know, just like where does taste come from? How much of taste is under our control? Is it nature or nurture? Are we born with a predilection to like a certain kind of thing and that prevails throughout our lifetime? Or is it a social construct? And if it's the latter, to what degree is it perhaps alarmingly open to manipulation by outside forces? And, uh, does he talk about rainbows? Uh, the book... <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to go right to the index and see if yeah, rainbows right, exactly. mentioned. Do, do you not? Do you not like M and M's? By the way, I love M and M's. I, I, I went to the movies last night, and Dorothy bought popcorn, and then she said, "And these are for you." And she gave me some M and M's, and I was just so happy. Yeah, they come in all those different colors. They you know, do, M&Ms. and they didn't come have. On. Yeah, I know it's true. It's uh, no, I love M and M's. Speaking of choice. Um, um, uh, the book has a uh, marvelous cover or covers by our friend Peter Mendelssohn, who's done a very simple, very elegant cover that kind of shows, uh, I believe there's just two of them, and they both, it shows an ice cream cone, a very simplified ice cream cone you can buy, um, you know, you can decide what flavor of ice cream you want decorating the cover of this book. It's just really a, a super nice cover, great book, and something that I think has fantastic implications, amazing implications for anyone that does design or thinks about design or cares about design. So it's called uh, You May Also Like Tom Vanderbilt in Stores Now. Uh, so I had two things that made me smile and happy this week, uh, among others. Uh, one, just briefly, uh, not to get into politics, but uh, many Oh, get into politics. Have... Go ahead. Hey, what, what the hell? It's my podcast. Well, uh, after Donald Trump made the comment about the woman card, uh, a young designer in Kansas City named Maddie Kramer made a whole deck of official women cards. And uh, I, it's just a delightful thing where she, of course, has her own view about how we should be looking at this gender stereotype damaging thing that uh, Trump is doing, among other things. But um, the best thing about her deck of cards is uh, that she made Trump the Joker because, as she said, he is a joke. So I thought that was really delightful. So the other thing I loved this week was that The New Yorker has a wonderful new issue, um, second mention of Christoph Neiman in this episode, he did the cover, uh, and it's their innovator issue. And what they did in this issue is they asked a series of people to talk about things that they, if they could, they would uninvent. And I thought this was just genius, right? So by far the best one to me was Carrie Brownstein. So Carrie Brownstein uh, is an actress. She's a, a singer. She's uh, She formed the band Slater Kinney. Uh, later, she has had a band called uh, Wild Flag. It's her second band. She's an actress, and she wants to uninvent the conference call. Yeah, yeah. It is a ridiculous thing that we have accepted that we can all be in different parts of the world on the phone when people are interrupting each other, and somebody's going through a tunnel, and it makes no sense, and time and space are compressed in this completely logical way, and that you always end up having all sorts of follow-up emails to make sense of what was a preposterous amount of time spent <laughs> trying to have a 17-way phone call. It is brilliant. I, I mean, I've never met anyone who says, wow, I, I just, conference calls are great, or I'm really excited. Uh, what's or going I on I just today, got off a Bob? great conference call. Oh, I've got, you know, I've, I've got three conference calls planned. I'm really looking forward to it, you know. It's like, no, like, like, everyone sort of agrees. These things are, like, stupid, bad, inefficient, moronic, and yet people just don't 
kind of subscribe to this like crazy fiction that there are efficient ways of actually getting decisions made. I uh, second that endorsement. It's really great. Hey, if I can squeeze in one more um, thing that I like uh, with the risk of, um, of embarrassing you, uh, our sponsor, Yale University Press, has a book out by you, Jessica Helfand, uh, which um, I think is wonderful. I'd like to compliment you on it, and I'd like to do what you are too modest to do, which is to recommend it to our listeners. It's called Design, the Invention of Desire. It is a very unusual uh, design book, a book of writing about design, but it looks at design, I would say, in the broadest possible way, in the deep, in a very deep sort of way, um, it's, uh, it doesn't get into any of the, um, uh, <laughs> I was going to say petty sniping that you and I indulge in on this podcast, um, <laughs> but it's still really engaging, really interesting to read. And it really talks about, um, you know, what it is we do when we, when we think about design, when we look at design, when we in fact, you know, perform the act of designing and what it is where how we're doing it as a way to reach other people, how we're doing it as a way to um, you know participate in um, you know in a larger culture, how we're doing it as a way of self exposure and self examination, and it just has it's just beautifully written. It's really it's um, it, I can't think of many other books at this moment I can't think of any other book that I would say is actually a lyrical um, book about you know design and this one is so uh, um, well thank you I, Michael I, I'm, I I'm, I'm interested to see what our listeners will make of this and, and hope that they will buy the book uh, it comes out May 24th from Yale University Press and uh, it is an it is an unusual book I, I think at a moment in history that will likely be remembered for its devotion to all things digital and at a time in which I think you would agree, Michael, that anyone with an Instagram feed thinks that their capacity for participating in and understanding visual literacy is, is akin to the most seasoned practitioner of design, we are at a crossroads culturally as a profession that deserved a closer look. And that's what this book tried to do. It's, it's a series of essays that are really almost meditations on things like authority and humility and solitude. Uh, which you know are hard things to think about in the context of something that is so public and performed to be embraced and digested publicly through visual means. But in fact, at the end of the day, it comes down to things like consequence. The things we make aren't just going to be skewered or thumbs up on Facebook for five minutes. They are going to represent us in generations to come. And we will all of us look back at our our progeny and their progeny will look back and say, what was what were those contributions to the world? How did visual language succeed or fail and address larger concerns than how many likes you get on a post? And it's probably my um, my midlife crisis. <laughs> I like to think it's my midlife crisis book. Yeah, no, it's um, it was it was it hard to write? Every book I've ever written, the hardest thing is coming up with the table of contents, and I, I probably for every table of contents I publish, I have jettisoned hundreds of them because the organizational conceit of how you mm. frame an argument is, uh, you know, it's probably, it's like a grid for a book or a, choosing a typist is like anything designers might do. But I think when you're dealing with a book and you're dealing with really the coordination and orchestration of a series of ideas over time and many pages, you really want to think about 
you know, the beginning and the middle and end of that story. Uh, the book was originally called Why Design Matters. And Yale is coming out with a series mm. of books on why things matter, right? So Alice Waters is doing a lot on food and David Reeve did the one on, I think, politics and, and, uh, and, and the public. And, and so there's a number of people who have been asked to look at things uh, in, this, in this bigger way. And, and I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to explain design. I'll talk about what a grid is. I'll talk about what color is. And I thought, no, those books have been written. There's got to be something deeper right. at a more granular level and also at a more aerial, from a more aerial view that looks at why design is really a core competency and a, and a cultural reality that people who are not only designers are embracing. And once I started to ask myself those questions, I realized that the opportunity was to look at design as a humanist discipline and argue for myself in this kind of meditative way. Uh, what were those things that were not buzzwords, that were not about things I'd read elsewhere. And I, I left the country for six months and I wrote most of it in Paris. There were no footnotes. And I really, it was a kind of, you know, almost monastic bargain I made with myself to just sit at a table and write. And it was, it was really, it was brutally hard. I'd love to help you with redesigning the cover for the book that I think would actually enhance its sales potential. I, I think you keep it more or less as is, but I would put on giant, you know, multi- pointed star day glow violators one of which says written in paris exclamation point and then the other one would say absolutely no footnotes exclamation point <laughs> i think there are very few no, books that were written new, in paris new and, and footnote free yeah footnote free footnote free it's also just it's 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 a pleasure to read. It's uh, it's fun to read, and it's um, it it actually does this thing that I think I every once in a while I hear someone talk about where they try to make a case for um, design as a branch of the humanities as opposed to just a branch of just the arts or just as it's viewed often now as almost a quasi-scientific or engineering activity. It right, really right, reestablishes right. design as a uh, creative act that's like literature, that's like writing, that's like all sorts of different things and positions it really well that way by taking both a long view but also getting very, as you say, you know, deep and, um, and granular about it. And, and uh, hey, Michael, yeah. fun fact. Yeah. I've never used that in a sentence before, but I think I'm going to use it now. Fun fact. Uh, no hyphenation. So uh, so to, to all of you budding writers and designers out there, when you write a book that you design, you can rewrite it to have no hyphenation. And interestingly, there's something quite calm about reading a book with no hyphenation. And it's, it's a wait a second. It's, I have the book in front of me. Let, let's be clear. It has no hyphenation, and it's justified left and right. Okay, so I think it's easy to have no hyphenation if you're flush left rag right. This is a book that's ju fully justified in every sense of the word, and has no hyphenation. <laughs> and 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 I and nowhere in the book did I detect any filler words like sort of or kind of. There's no SAT words in here. Well, there are a lot of SAT words. Actually you're actually probably a, are. Yeah. Yeah, you're a um, uh, you're an eloquent. Um, uh, learned person, but uh, don't let that put you off, readers. It's a really good book that I guarantee you will enjoy. It's called Design, the Invention of Desire by our own Jessica Helfand. Hey, as a technical matter, did you like write between seven and nine every morning? Did you sit in the same place with the same cup of coffee? Did you have some sort of regime you used? I know a lot of designers who I think would be good writers and have said they'd like to write something, and they just seem kind of intimidated by the actual process of like the physical labor associated with it. They know how to design things, but 
the idea of sitting down and writing something just seems sort of uh or writing something of uh, of of length and substance just seems kind of like intimidating. I think there, I think that the writing uh, is there is a similar rigor to design. There's a woman at Yale named Anne Fadiman who's a writing uh, mm. tutor, and she says that all writers are one of two types: they're either vomiters <laughs> or they're diamond polishers. And so the vomiter throws everything out there, keeps going, and the diamond polisher writes one sentence, writes sentence two, goes back and rewrites sentence one. I am the latter. And I, I liken it to making cookies, like you roll out the dough and then you always have scraps and you roll out the scraps and then you get more cookies out of the scraps. That is my version of writing. And I, I tend to write better in the morning than at night. Um, I've been known to not get dressed because I will not let myself go out of the house in my pajamas. Therefore, I am obligated to write at my table in my pajamas. Oh, that's good. Um, but I, I'm very critical in this book about a number of things. And one of them gets at this question of writing because it gets at the idea of solitude. I know designers like to work in studios with lots of music blaring. I can't write with music that has lyrics. You know, speaking of distraction, there's this thing I believe called the free write, which is a device upon which uh, you can write things, but it's specifically designed for our peculiar age. It sort of is, uh, you know, supposed to be almost like the traditional typewriter in that you can only go forward you you don't get incoming email and uh, all those distractions you sort of uh, uh, can't you're not invited to kind of go back and, and and twiddle with things or distract yourself it's kind of a uh, 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 an attempt I believe to uh, reestablish the enforced solitude that I think writing used to have at its heart where now if you're if you're typing on a typical you know if you're typing on a laptop or any other device that has connection you're or even if you're all alone in your pajamas in your uh, in a locked room with a cat and some Vivaldi playing you've got one click away the whole world waiting to distract you from the task at hand Writing is interesting because, um, you know, every literate person, quote unquote, knows how to write. I think there's a lot of people that say, I don't know how to draw or I don't know anything about design, but everyone knows how to write. They write, you know, a postcard from vacation or they write an email or they write different things. And yet there's sort of this kind of writing that's seen as, quote unquote, real writing that people don't think they know how to do. And the brilliant and wonderful design critic Ralph Kaplan has often said, uh, that as a professional writer, he would have people approach him at, say, cocktail parties and things, and they'd say they had great ideas for books, great ideas for articles, and they'd say, you know, I know what I want to say, but I'm, I'm having trouble putting it into words. And Ralph would always say, well, what form do you have it in now? And, <laughs> <laughs> and sort of, I don't know. That's so good. It's kind of a snarky question, but there is a difference between ideas in their unformed state and what it takes to get them in a coherent uh, form on paper, on the or as people say, there, there's a reason why people call it work. Yeah, uh, exactly. My friend Betsy Lerner, who's a novelist and a, and a book agent, actually uh, has a new book out called *The Bridge Ladies*. Uh, and uh, uh, one of her snarky reviews on Amazon said, uh, "This book would have been better if somebody else had written it." <laughs> and Betsy, without missing a beat, posted, "Well, I asked Don DeLillo, but he wasn't available." Right. So I mean, you know, it's hard. There's a reason you work at your kitchen table under near monastic silence, trying to get those ideas. That that's what it is to be an original. Think, I mean, I'd like to think my ideas are original, and you want to reference the, the rest of the world. But I think, I mean, these people, from what I understand, it was originally called the Hemming Wright. They raised almost $350,000 on Kickstarter. Why not just get a typewriter? You can pick one up for $3 at a thrift shop. I don't know. That's, that's my view. I, I think the idea that, that we create a challenging and unusual circumstances by which we do the things that just need to be done 
Uh, I mean, on some level, that's what drives design. That's why Dyson makes interesting and, and unusual looking vacuum cleaners, but they're also engineered to be better vacuum cleaners, to use less energy and to be more streamlined. And so, and so this, I think it, it harkens back to me a little bit to the, to the brutalism argument, right? To the mm. idea that we're making things intentionally ugly, intentionally weird to be memorable and to be useful. And if that's what it takes, I suppose it's fine. It's just, it's a little bit backwards. Yeah, and I think that, that in fact, like a lot of Kickstarter ideas, this one is half, appears to me to be like half a sincere proposal and half a, like almost an editorial cartoon in a way, you know. Sort <laughs> right, of like exactly. A bit, of, a bit of speculative fiction that's making some larger commentary about the age that we live in and our propensity to distraction. And what if there were a device? And so, you know, it's like almost using Kickstarter itself as a medium of fiction writing. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com, and you can find links there to things we discussed, including Jessica's new book, Design, The Invention of Desire. If you like what you heard today, please tell your friends about The Observatory or go to iTunes and rate us or leave a review. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters, with Debbie Millman. Thanks to Yale University Press for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon.